0: Good morning. morning. It is summer. If you couldn't tell, a lot of people are on some vacations, and we have some college students that just graduated. When was graduation? Friday. Amazing. Awesome. Well, it's good to be together. Uh, I'm going to invite our uh, volunteer team to come forward. We're going to give our offering to the Lord this morning. What you heard Courtney share about mentorship, discipleship, that is central to everything we do here at Grace Athens. We exist to fulfill the Great Commission. And so uh, we want to continue to share those stories that are happening in our congregation uh, of people uh, of just doing that and going for it. And so Thanks so much to you that are. Thanks so much to you that give so that we can um, go after that mission here in this community. Uh, It is is what we do as a church family. So as the offering baskets are going around, let's do this. Open your Bibles with me to Psalms 67. Psalms 67 is where we're going to be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, look on with a friend or pull out your smartphone. Uh, I want you to see the text. Um, Psalms 67. We're in a month-long series in the Psalms. And uh, we're going to pick up right there this morning. As you turn there, let me state to you uh, my agenda. I come to you this morning with one single question. Just one. One question. It's a particular question. Maybe even a provocative question uh, that I believe cannot go unanswered in the life of a believer. I've really come to believe this Uh, and how we answer it. This single question, I think, has great consequence for your Christian life this morning and for the life of our church. And maybe you've even already asked this question yourself when you've read the Bible. So That's what I want to talk about. We find this question coming out of Psalm 67, and so let's pick up right there in verse 1. Let's read this together. It reads this, may God be gracious to us and bless us. Make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the people praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the people praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Just seven verses. A short psalm. But within it uh, is this question. Here's the question I want to spend the entire morning trying to solve. It goes like this. Is God an egomaniac? When he commands all people to praise him. I'll say it again. Is God an egomaniac when he commands all people to praise him? God has scripture command a hundred times over things like this. Praise God. Glorify God. Exalt God. Boast in God delight in God, magnify God, live for God. Over and over, these commands happen in Scripture. And so you have to just wonder and ask the question. Look at verse 3, right here in the psalm. Look at at what God's after. Let the people praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. And then he says it again. When you see repetition in the Hebrew Scriptures, it means this is very, very, very important. Verse 5. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The question uh, to ask that will quickly help you understand these seven verses is, is this question. What is God after here? In this song you see, when you study the Bible, it should be a conversation. You should be coming up with questions. Questions will lead you to deeper answers. And so when you find yourself uh, sleeping past your alarm, even though you said, This week I'm gonna get up early before work or school and I'm gonna study the scriptures, one of the reasons is because studying your Bible is boring to you. Why is it boring? Because it's not interactive. You must ask questions of the text. It'll take you on a journey. So here's the question to ask here. In these seven verses, what is God after? And this is what you'll find. In verse 1, take a look. It says God blesses his people, but he blesses his people for a particular outcome. There's four. Here are the four things God is after. Verse 2 says that your way may be known on the earth. Number one, God wants to be known in the world. That's what you see first. Go down to verse Three, let all let the peoples praise you, O oh God. God wants to be, secondly, praised in the world. So he wants to be known. He wants to be praised. And look at verse four. This is not rocket science. We're just looking at the text. What does it say in verse four? Let the nations be glad, be happy, uh, and sing for joy. Number three, God wants to be enjoyed in the world. And then number four, go down to verse seven. It says, God shall bless us. Let, the, let all the ends of the earth Fear him. Number four, God wants to be feared in the world. So the logic here is God blesses a particular people so that he'll get these four outcomes. Okay? What you also find, we're just making observations, that's what you do when you first come to the passage, is that God's desire for these four things is not limited. I didn't see any kind of limited, exclusive language here. I saw big inclusive, everyone kind of language. Right? Look at verse 3. Let all the peoples praise you. All right? Look at verse 4. Let the nations be glad. He has in mind all nations. And then he ends it very emphatically at the end in verse 7. Let all the ends of the earth, not one corner or crevice or square inch of the earth would be left out. Let all the ends of the earth be. Fear him is what it says. So we take a step back. Seemingly, the entire thing, all seven verses are about one person. And that person is God. Clearly. And I would say this. If you're half awake when reading your Bible, you will come to the fair conclusion that God is extremely zealous for all people everywhere to know and praise him and him alone there's no rivals in the bible it is god 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 and god right that's the undebatable conclusion of scripture think of it this way if i asked what are the 10 commandments some of you might know six some of you might know four some of you might know all 10 But if we put our heads together we can get all 10 what's the very first command in the 10 commandments No rivals. Look at it. Exodus 20 should be on the screen. God says, I'm the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Here it is. You shall have no other gods before me. God says. Joshua 23. So that you will not associate with these nations, these which remain among you or mention the name of their gods or make anyone swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. Get the picture here? Deuteronomy 5. You shall not worship them, God says, or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. How intense he makes it. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. God, God, and more go. I'm going to ask it another way. I want you to feel the tension of this. Here's another question. Is God being self-absorbed when he does everything for his own glory? Have you noticed this in scripture? Don't worry. I came with a pocketful of them. Here they are. Isaiah 43. Look for it. Look for God doing things for the main intention of his glory in the nations. Verse 6. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Big language. Everyone who is called by my name Whom I created for what? For my glory, whom I formed and made. Jeremiah 13. I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise and a glory. First Corinthians 10. Some of you probably have this memorized. So whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do. In your life, do all to the what? Glory of God. Check out this example. Acts 12, 23. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. Habakkuk 2. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And lastly, if I haven't made the point clear, first Peter four, verse 11, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Everything that God does is for the praise and the knowing and the acknowledgement and the delight of his glory. I'm going to ask it another way. I'm going to try and make you uncomfortable this morning. Is God being self-indulgent? When he openly says he's doing something solely for his namesake. This is where it gets, I think, very clear. Look at these. Look at these verses. They should really make you wonder. Isaiah 48 reads this God says for Do we have that one? Yes we do. For my name's sake I defer my anger. He's talking to his people. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory, God says, I will not give to another. Psalms 106 Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his namesake, that he might make known his mighty power. Why did God save the the, the Israelites in Egypt? Answer, for his namesake, that he might make known his power to all people. Ezekiel 20 But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations, in whose sight I had brought them out. Romans 9, for the scriptures say to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So why did God allow Pharaoh, God is sovereign, God is in the details why does he allow Pharaoh to rise to power? Why does he hand even do it as it says? So that through Pharaoh, God might get the glory. Two more. Ezekiel 36. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name and the nations will know that I am the Lord. Lastly, it doesn't get any more clear than this. Isaiah 43, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and I will not remember your sins. We get the picture. God, God and more God. God saying that I might be known, that I might be praised, that I might be glorified, that I might uphold my name in the sight of the nations. So I return to the original question. Is God being an egomaniac when he commands all people to praise him? My answer to this very legitimate question If you talked like that, we'd call you an egomaniac. You might know some people who think like that. It might be you. We'll pray for you. Is God being an egomaniac when he commands all people to know and praise him? My answer to this question is an emphatic no. No. God is not being an egomaniac. In fact, it is just the opposite. God is never more righteous. God is never more loving than when he commands his praise and his glory to be known in all the nations of the earth. Never more righteous. Never more loving and thinking of you when he does that. Now, how in the world is that true? You heard the verses. I'm not hiding anything. How's that true? Let's take the first one. How is God never more righteous? Being right, right. When God exalts God's self. Let's look at the facts. There's a pastor in Virginia named David Platt, McLean Bible Church. It's very helpful to understand this. Fact number one is this, according to scripture. God is a God centered God who lives to exalt himself. That's fact number one. God is a God centered God who lives to exalt himself. That rubs some people the wrong way. And if that rubs you the wrong way, I would ask this follow up question Who else would you have him exalt? You? Me? As if you or I were at the center of God's universe. You are not at the center of God's universe. I am not at the center of God's universe. God is at the center of God's universe. And everything God does ultimately revolves around himself. We're speaking of God here. And if God, get this were to exalt someone or something else other than himself, then God would be an idolater. Do you see that? I'm trying to open the box on our thinking of God here. God would be an idolater. God would not be right or righteous if he ever exalted anything else but himself or led you to do the same. God would be leading you into idolatry if he was not supremely concerned with his own glory and exaltation being rightly known by all people. That's why he's so concerned about it. And he's right to be. Otherwise, God would be leading you And me to break his very first commandment. And not only that, get this, God would be leading people to their own self misery and delusion if he led them to anywhere but himself. Do you get that? I'm taking us to a deeper level this morning and I know you can go there. He'd be abandoning you to your own self-misery and self-delusion if the only thing you lived for was yourself. If you thought you really were the center of the universe. You see? If God was not chiefly concerned with His glory being known by all people, He would be abandoning all people to their own self-misery and idolatry. So then the conclusion is as follows. God is being supremely righteous. When throughout God's story, cover to cover, showed it to you, you see God's chief aim is his glory being known in all the nations of the earth. Look at just three examples. God doesn't hide his intentions because there's nothing unrighteous about what God is doing. In fact, it's the most righteous thing God could do. Malachi chapter 1, for from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. Of course it would. Who else, who other's name would he exalt? And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Ezekiel 39, and I will set my glory among the nations, and all the nations shall see my judgment that I have executed, and my hand that I have laid on them. The house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. Praise God, that's mercy, that's graciousness. Isaiah 66, for I know their works and their thoughts. And the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and shall see my glory. I came across a great message from Pastor David Platt, who we've referenced, and he's talking about God being concerned for this and God's intentions of what he's doing are for this main goal and purpose. You see it throughout the Old Testament and New Testament stories. You guys remember the story about Jericho, right? Joshua 5 and 6. It's the first big battle that the people of God have, the Israelites in the promised land. And God tells them to do something very strange. He tells them to, instead of coming up with some strategic plan to take over the city, he tells them to march around it seven days. And he tells the band to play music. It's very odd. I want to show you a clip from this message where you really get the insight of why God is doing what God Let's play that now. It's the story of him leading his people into the Promised Land. It's Joshua
1: 5 and 6, first major battle in the Promised Land. City of Jericho, massive walls all the way around it. Joshua, Joshua chapter 5, verse 13, he's off by himself, wondering, this is the first major battle they've been training for 40 years plus. How are you going to take the city? They have five military options available to them to take the city with these walls. You know, number one, they can go under, over the walls. Number two, they can go under the walls. Number three, they can try to break through the walls. Number four, they can send a decoy in, kind of like a Trojan horse type thing. And number five, they can starve the people inside the walls make them come out. So he's got five options. Over, under, through. Send the decoy in starve and make them come out. God comes to him and says, here's the battle plan. Joshua's thinking, over, oh, under, through, decoy, starve. God says... Get your music, guys. Some trumpet players. Pull out sheet music. And you guys play some tunes for a couple days. <laughs> and here's the kicker of Once you play some songs for a few days, and everybody at the same time is going to shout. The walls will come down. If you are Joshua, you're wanting a second opinion at that point. Can you imagine going back to an army that's been ready to battle for 40 plus years? and be like, uh, guys, we're, we're giving this to, to the music guys. Stay there. They've been working hard too, and we're going to give it to them. Why? God designed that battle plan for the first major city of the Promised Land. He's doing what he does all throughout Scripture. He's orchestrating the events of his people so that in the end, only he gets the glory for what happens. Let me tell you what you don't see in Joshua chapter 6 when they take the city exactly like God said to take the city. You don't see all the Israelites going up to trumpet players telling them what an incredible job they did that day. <laughs> Harry, I've never heard you play that well. Ralph, you hit the high C. It was awesome. You were running in. No, you see the people on their faces saying only God could have done that. God has making a great name for Himself. And so it's the reason behind, motivation behind all the stories in the Old Testament. Why Shadrai, Meshach, and then go thrown into a fiery furnace? So that when they come out on the other side without a drop of sweat on their brow, a pagan king would give glory to God for the way he saved his people. It's why God let us. Servant Daniel be thrown into alliance lives in Daniel chapter 6, so that when he gets delivered out the next morning alive, a pagan king yet again says throughout the land, the sovereign God of Daniel is loyal to praise. Amen. It's the story of him leading his people. and stop
0: there. Very insightful. Very, very, very insightful. So friends, God is not only righteous to pursue his glory being known by all, but God is also amazingly loving. Loving. I want to take that second one. How does that work? How is God being most loving towards me and towards you when He commands me to know Him, to praise Him, to exalt Him, to delight in Him, to glorify Him, and all the following it says in Scripture? Well, I'm going to lean on two people I found to be uh, good sources. On this particular matter, and that's a pastor named John Piper and a old, old pastor and bishop named Augustine of Hippo. Piper says this. It should be on the, on the screen. And since God is the source of greatest happiness... And since he is the greatest treasure in the world, and since his glory is the most satisfying gift he could possibly give us, therefore, it is the kindest, most loving thing he could possibly do to reveal himself and magnify himself and vindicate himself for our everlasting enjoyment. You see that? God is the one, the one being, For whom self-exaltation is the most loving act because he is exalting for us the one thing that can fully satisfy our souls. For you to be self-exalting is wrong. It's unrighteous and it's unloving because you cannot satisfy that person's soul. That's how so many relationships go bad. But for God to do it, the perfect and infinite one, who made you, who knows what you need, who's the greatest source of all joy and happiness. It's incredibly righteous and incredibly loving. Psalm 16, verse 11, in your presence, God, there is fullness of joy, it says, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The reason God is not an egomaniac in exalting himself is because he is exalting the very thing that satisfies my soul. Namely, his beauty, his glory, his mercy, his grace, his holiness, his love, and his very presence in my life. Piper says it this way. Take a look. If we exalt ourselves We are not loving because we distract people from the one person who can make them happy forever, God. But if God exalts himself, he draws attention to the one person who can make us happy forever, himself. The logic and the heart behind it are clear. This is going to change the way you relate to God. It's going to change the way you relate to people. It's going to change your ambitions in life. Piper asks a great question in some of his writings. The question goes like this. Which makes you feel more loved by God? That he makes much of you or at great cost to himself? Back up. Or that he enables you at great cost to himself to enjoy making much of him? The answer is as follows. God's true love The highest divine love, Piper writes, is not mainly God making much of us, but God giving the highest price imaginable in his son to free us from our bondage to joy-destroying self so that we can enjoy making much of him forever. He goes on, I really believe with all my heart that human beings are created for joy in God, for admiring God, for being amazed at God, for standing in awe of God and wondering At God. So church, I believe we have our answer. And the answer is as follows. God is never more righteous, never more loving than when he pursues zealously his glory being known and praised and enjoyed in all the nations. But what is the application? How does this pull down into your everyday life? It's as following. My happiness, every human being wants to be happy. That's the one thing we can all agree on. Right? If you go anywhere in the world. What do you want out of life? Well, I, I want to be happy. My happiness and God's glory are not at odds with each other. They're not at odds with each other. My desire to be happy and God's desire to be glorified, glorified are not in conflict. Here's why. Because God alone knows how to make the human being supremely happy. It is Himself. The Bishop Augustine of Hippo, a long, long, long time ago, wrote this. It's still relevant. Speaking of God, he says, you stir man to take pleasure in praising you because you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Last quote from Piper, he says this, if God made me and myself the end of my goal, the end of my quest, he wouldn't love me so much As if he made himself the end of my goal and my quest. Because self, no matter how glorified, no matter how much made much of, will never satisfy my heart. I must look away from my made much of self in order to see God truly and love him as my final treasure. Piper famously says this. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in Him. You see, the chief end of mankind is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. The application is this. You were made for His glory. To know it. To be in it. To love it. To make much of it, and it alone in the universe will make you happy forever. Application, here it is. Live for his glory. Live for his glory. To know it and to make it known. To make God's glory, as it says in the text, known all over the earth. That's what fulfilling the Great Commission is all about. Go make disciples of Jesus till the earth is filled with the knowledge of God's glory as the waters cover the sea. That's what it's about. Grace Athens exists, friends, for the glory of God to be known and worshipped in this surrounding community. That's why we're here. That's why we want to build this church up. That's why we want to over the years, fill this auditorium up. It's not for our namesake. sake, no, not for our namesake, sake, but for your name, God, that it might be known and worshipped and glorified and enjoyed in this county and the next. That's why we exist. That's why you should serve here. That's why you should give here. That's why we should do anything we do here is for that chief aim and goal. For the knowledge of God's glory to sweep through this community, to sweep through these hallways, to sweep through that children's ministry, to sweep through your neighborhood, to sweep through your place of work, to sweep through your degree. That people would come to know the greatest treasure there is. God and God alone. So today. We've asked a question. We've given an answer. We've arrived at an application. All in 30 minutes. And now what I want to do is I want to go to the Lord's table. I want to end there. But I want to go to the Lord's table remembering something very, very important. We must remember something. And here's what we must remember when we come to the Lord's table. We remember the high cost of knowing and living for God's glory, which is this, the sin bearing death of his son. Don't miss this. The sin bearing death of his son. Let me make it clear. Let me proclaim the gospel to you. It's because of Jesus's self-sacrifice that you can know and enjoy God's glory and not God's wrath. You see that? It's because of Jesus's self-sacrifice that you can know and enjoy God's grace and not God's justice. It's because of Jesus's self-sacrifice that you can know and enjoy God's love and not God's enjoyment. Jesus is the way. And so we come to his table this morning with just a feeling of immense indebtedness and gratefulness to the son. He is the way to God's glory and to your happiness forever. And that is why we should be so bent On doing whatever we can to make him known to the people in our lives. It's serious stuff. Serious stuff. Life on this planet is a passageway to eternity, period. You don't know when you'll die, but I can tell you this you will die. And you'll look back on your time here and say, that was a blink. That was a vapor. That was a mist. That was nothing compared to living eternally, forever, either with God or without God. Either happy in His presence or miserable without His presence. That's what's at stake, friends. We're here for such a short time. What matters is not so much this life, but the next. This is why Jesus says over and over. Those who try and hold on to their life in this world or save their life in this world, you will lose it is what he says. But those who lose their life in this world, this quick, faint moment, for my name and for my gospel, you will gain it forever. And that's what matters. Forever. I'll tell you this. You will never once look back and regret Not once will you regret serving or giving or witnessing or whatever it is to make God's glory known. You will never, ever regret that. I don't care if you lose a relationship for it. You still won't regret it in eternity. Never once. There's not a lot of things I can guarantee you from this pulpit, but I can guarantee you that. What you do with these few years you have. you live for his glory, you make decisions, you set up your life, you set up your finances, you set up your daily schedule, you set up your routine and your friendships and the people you're trying to influence. If you set that up for that massive, big, and awesome end goal, God's glory, the one thing that will remain when everything is shattered, you will not regret it. You won't. And I say that standing on the authority of Scripture. And you know it. I shared this morning with the team. Caleb was leading our, our prayer time before he asked a great question. He said, What's God been teaching you this week? Simple question. What's God been teaching you this week? And I told him, I just I said, I've been. I've been studying some things. I've been reading some dead people, those older voices in Christianity. Right? Sometimes we we tune them out. Too challenging, too big, too much sacrifice. I said, I just feel like I'm being invited into a whole new understanding of God. I really do. It's only happened a couple times in my Christian life. I just feel like I'm being invited into a whole new relationship. I'm seeing God so much bigger and so much more magnified, and so much more important than I think I ever did What's God teaching you this week? How is God wooing you, and pursuing you, and inviting you, and disciplining you, and correcting you, and moving you deeper towards the end goal of all history? God's glory and your enjoyment of Him. Amen.